Welcome to the Sunday Morning Bible Study at Whitestone Christian Fellowship, taught by Pastor Bob Lorenz. We're located in the village of Victor, a little southeast of Rochester, New York. Pastor Bob teaches line by line and verse by verse from the Word of God. Now, let's join this week's Sunday Morning Bible Study, already in progress. We haven't sung those, uh, that set of songs in a long time. But it's really appropriate these days because we want to be Christians, but we don't want it to be just outwardly so that other people see it. We want it to be inward from the heart so that you yourself see it, Lord. Uh, And it's important. Uh, We gather together and we, we share the words of life every week But boy, it's so easy to take that for granted. So easy to take it for granted. Lord, we want to be in a relationship with you. And Lord, we ask you to bless our time this morning. For those of you that are joining us this morning on the internet or later in the week, we we welcome you to the Sunday morning service, uh, August the 5th, September the 5th, I'm sorry, 2021. Uh, Our teaching this morning is going to be in Matthew chapter 15, but first we have a reading in Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 5 through 8, we will read together. Ecclesiastes is written by the same scribe that wrote Proverbs, none other than Solomon, King Solomon himself, one of the wealthiest and wisest kings that Israel ever had, a son of David, but he wasn't perfect. He broke laws. He was a sinner saved by grace, I think, just as we are. The scriptures said that the kings were not to multiply wives nor horses to themselves. Well, David multiplied wives and horses to himself, and Solomon obliterated that record and had many, many more wives, and Israel was a great nation under his leadership. We expect to see him in heaven just because of his writings. He, 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 he scribed and, and wrote two of the books of the Holy Scripture, and they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So join me as we read Ecclesiastes 10, 5 through 8. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, as an error which proceedeth from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. I have seen servants upon horses, and princes walking as servants upon the earth. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaketh a hedge, a serpent shall bite him. 
things are turned upside down in this vision that, that Solomon saw. But he says it's an evil that he has seen under the sun. In other words, it's an evil that he saw here on earth. It wasn't just a vision. We're watching this take place now worldwide in almost every culture. The rich are being set aside. They're being treated as servants and slaves. And the poor and the lowly are set up as the ones to honor and glorify. Things are, things are sort of backwards because the rulers have now become servants and the servants have become rulers. And the rulers are really no longer ruling except by fear. I don't know if you've ever, if you've, if you've ever had a, a situation in your home, maybe as a child, uh, maybe even as an adult, or during your school years or your college years. But when someone is set up to rule over you who is not loving but demanding and unbending and unmerciful, you wonder, what is going on? Why do I have to endure this? And we may even cry out to God saying, Lord, where are you in all of this? That's our entire culture today. Lord, where are you in all of this? He's right there in prophecy. He is right there in prophecy telling us that all these things must come to pass. It is an end of things. But there are rulers and leaders in our world even back in the days of Jesus, who were doing the same thing, lording their positions over others when they really had no leadership skills of their own. In Matthew 19, the first 15 verses is our study today, we find that Jesus is back in the land of Judea. And as always, wherever Jesus went, the crowds followed. And in verse 1 it says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished all these sayings from the previous several chapters, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The power of Christ to heal is not specific to a geographical location. Wherever Jesus is, there is healing. Wherever Jesus is, there is teaching. Wherever Jesus is, there is an example of living, not for yourself, but for those around you, for those that are in need. That's what Jesus did. That is his life. That's the whole reason that he came to earth because mankind had a need. 
We needed to be saved from ourselves, from our sin and our sinful ways. But a great multitude followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees, some of the temple leaders from Jerusalem out of Judea, the Pharisees also came unto him. He's got all of these people that he's healing and ministering and teaching, and the Pharisees want to come and say, uh, we, we have some things to ask you. We need some clarification on your teachings. The Pharisees also came to him, tempting him. This is an interesting word to use in this position like this. In other words, they came to trap him and to trick him into saying something or stating something that was contrary to the law of Moses. As I mentioned earlier on in our opening, Moses was godlike to the Jews and still is to many of them. They believe that it's only his first five books of the Bible that are truly inspired, and they follow those books because they establish the Levitical law, they establish the law that the Jews decided they would live under. But as with anybody who is assigned a position, who is not trained for it, or who does not have the character for it, abuses can rise. And at this time, the time that Jesus came back, or came to earth, came to his creation, that is exactly what happened. The abuses had risen, and the Jewish leadership ruled and ruled and ruled over the people. They forgot whose people these were. They were God Almighty's people. They were his chosen people. They were chosen to bring Messiah into the world, and when Messiah came, they missed him. And so jealous of they were they of his of his ministry, his teachings, his healings, doing all of the things that Messiah was prophesied to do, so jealous were they of him that they wanted to expose him as a false teacher. And so they come to Jesus, tempting him with an entrapment question, and saying unto him, Is it lawful? You know, they're pointing back to the law of Moses. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? The liberal theologians of the time had determined that it was for any uncleanness that could be perceived in a woman that could cause her to be put away or divorced. Anything. And it became so liberal in their thinking that it wasn't just for moral difficulties. 
It wasn't just because you found out she wasn't a virgin when you married her. It wasn't just because she had eyes towards other men. It was, it was for regular household duties or even marital responsibilities. If she didn't please him physically, if she didn't cook for him the favorite foods that he liked, if the hard-boiled eggs were boiled too long and the yolks were too hard, they would call it an uncleanness because she could not please her husband. That's how far every cause went. Now, Rabbi Hillel went the other way, adhering strictly to the Scriptures. But it's so much easier to be liberal in your religious thinking, isn't it? You know, you take, you take one little freedom over here and then it leads to another that goes beyond what God's plan for your life is. It's easy to be liberal. To adhere strictly to God's Word takes self-discipline. It takes a willingness on our part to do those things. So is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they, shall be, they too shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh, for what, for therefore God, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Did you read in the beginning? Before Moses, what God's plan was for a marriage relationship. They're leaning on the teachings of Moses. And God is taking them back further. Jesus is taking them back to the Father's words to let them know that this is what God designed. Now who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow a man? Moses. So revered was Moses among the Jews that they preferred to follow him. You might remember even as Moses came down off Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, that he saw what they were doing. In a mere 40 days, they were into idolatry and worshiping a golden calf and into all kinds of debauchery in the camp. And who was the first one to break the Ten Commandments? Moses. He took those tablets that God gave him and he smashed them on the ground. He broke all ten all at once, literally. With a single throw. 
Now who are you going to follow? The commandments of God? Or are you going to follow a man that breaks all the commandments all at once? Literally. As well as figuratively. That's the difficulty. The Pharisees were there to try to trap Jesus. What are you going to tell us, Jesus, about our revered leader, Moses? You're telling us one thing. Moses is saying another. Are you a false teacher? And that was the point. They wanted to identify him as a false teacher to take him down off the pedestal that the Jews had put him on who followed him from city to city to be healed and to be taught. He takes them away from Moses and back to God because following a man doesn't work. It doesn't work. There is nothing humanly done in following a man that can lead us to salvation unless that man is unwaveringly pointing us to God and Jesus Christ. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. It's interesting when you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. It tells us that God created man in his own image. And eventually, he created woman from the rib of a man. A part close to his heart from a rib. And he took that rib and fashioned a woman. But while Adam was sleeping is when he took the rib out of Adam to fashion it into Eve. So when Adam wakes up, he's no longer complete and full. He is no longer a complete image of God, but his complement is next to him as a woman. So with the two coming back together again in marriage, we find a wholeness again a more complete image of God. That's why Jesus says, and the two become one. They become unified. They're a couple. They're a matched set. And there we find a more full image of God. Therefore, no more twain, but one flesh, in verse 6. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. This is interesting because it was man that had the, the rule and the ability to divorce his wife. The women did not have the ability to divorce their husbands. And so the Pharisees come to the next question. Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? They're back to Moses. They don't want to hear what God says and what God has said and what has been recorded in their scrolls, their Torah. They don't want to hear that. They want to listen to Moses because it's easier. 
it's easier. If anybody tells you that marriage is easy, they're fooling you. Marriage is something that you work at for a lifetime. Two people coming back, coming together and being as one is work because we are selfish individuals. We can have great compassion, but a lot of times, most of the time, quite often, we have a self-serving attitude in our lives that can easily run our lives and ruin our relationships. We think about the fact that the divorce rate in our country and even among Christians is so high. Well, here's why. People want a divorce for any reason under the sun. Any reason under the sun. I have a member of, our fa- of my family that he married this beautiful woman lovely gal and after about five years she she looked at him and said you know this isn't working I'm about 95% happy but I think I deserve that other 5% too so she filed for divorce for 5% she threw away the 95% of happiness and found herself alone and back on the dating scene was where she was five years earlier. What a shame that people are so willing to throw a commitment away and not work at it, to strengthen it, to establish it. Now, when the scriptures tell tell us to leave father and mother, to cleave to our wives... It's leave, cleave, and the unspoken word is weave. Weave your lives together. Do things together. Find things that you have in common that you can build on to make the relationship secure. That's what God's plan was all along to leave father and mother, to cleave to your wife, and to weave your lives together. They are no more twain, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Then they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? They're waiting for this because Jesus has fallen into their trap. They are now pitting God's word against the word of Moses. Just another human being. An honored and powerful one. A leader who led the people out of bondage in Egypt. But he's still just a man. In fact, 
He was the kind of man that because of his sin, he was forbidden to go into the promised land with the rest of the people. That's the great Moses. Jesus said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. He literally, he's saying, because your hearts are so hard, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But in doing so, he said, look, if you're going to do it, you got to do it the right way. You're going to make it official. You're going to give her a bill of divorcement. You'll find, you'll find the weave, the leave, cleave, and weave passage in Genesis 2. You don't find the divorce, the divorce agreements until Deuteronomy 24. It's interesting, in Genesis, it's verse 2, 24. In Deuteronomy, it's chapter 24, verse 2. The numbers are switched, turned around. Dyslexia has set in, <laughs> if you want to think of it that way. Moses twisted the law and said, if you're going to do this, at least do it officially with a law of the writing of divorcement. But the motivation behind it, Jesus tells all of these Pharisees something that they were already familiar with, these laws of divorcement. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, allowed you to do it. Your hearts are so hard. They're hard against the person that you love, the person that you care about, the person that's the mother of your children, the person that cooks for you and takes care of you. And we have to remember during that time, it was the person who was considered owned by her husband. So this bill of divorcement is really a bill or a, a piece of paper that says, I don't want to own you anymore. I don't want to have to supply you with the things that you need, which you use to supply the things that I need. Cutting off your face despite, cutting off your nose despite your face. It, foolishness. Because God said you're to weave your lives together. I remember going into, when I first went into ministry 30 years ago, uh, a dear uncle and aunt spoke to my wife and I, and they said, Bob, wherever the Lord takes you, take your wife with you. And to my wife, Noreen, they said, wherever he is sent, go with him. Be with him in travels. Be with him in ministry. Because the two are one. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
So who are we going to believe? Who are we going to follow? The one who designed the marriage relationship? The one who had a perfect idea? Or the one who followed perfect imperfection and allowed for families to be split up? Jesus continued, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, and he graciously puts a perfect example in, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marry another, commits adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, shall commit adultery. Adultery is apparently rampant in our culture today as it was rampant in the culture back then. Jesus is pointing out that the law of Moses also says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. So he takes them back to Moses again. He takes them to the Father. He tells them what Moses did. And then he says, Here's the law of divorce If you're divorcing your wife and you marry another, you're committing adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. See, Jesus is incredibly clear on this in his own mind because it's the mind of the Father. If you put away your wife because of fornication then she's the one that committed the adultery first and you have every right to put her away. But if you're going to marry another person who has already been put away from their husband, then you're committing adultery just like your wife. This can be confusing, but this is cross-referenced up into into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a whole chapter on marriage and divorce and what God expects from us. And this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit also through the words written by Paul. So this is all pretty confusing and it's convicting even among the disciples and apostles because they all know people. They all know people, maybe in their families, that have done these things. Divorces and remarriages, putting away, unfaithfulness, all of that. So his disciples, in verse 10, they say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. They must be able to see in their own culture that not only men, but women have wandering eyes too. Why do I want to put myself at risk of breaking not only God's plan, but the laws of Moses as well? If the case of a man be that way with his wife, it's not good to marry. I better stay single. (laughs) 
I'd rather be single than fall into the condemnation of sin. That's how important sin should be to all of us. That we should want to avoid it at all costs because we know that it is not pleasing to God. But then in verse 11, Jesus said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, except they to whom it is given. Not everybody is supposed to live under this rule. There's grace given. There's forgiveness implied. You can't, not all men can receive this saying, except those to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. They were born as eunuchs. And there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. Some men are born eunuchs. They're impotent from their mother's womb because of birth defects or whatever. There are other men who are eunuchs by other men. Many of the slaves of Egypt became eunuchs because their owners required them to be eunuchs and removed the physical ability for any kind of intimacy. And there are other eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. They have chosen to remain celibate. Now he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Can we grasp this? Is this for us? Or will we, will we live under God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That's where we are. But make no mistake that when there's a divorce, when there is trouble between a husband and a wife, it's the children that suffer the physical emblems of two becoming one. Our offspring, our children, they are the evidence of a relationship where two have become one. Now, in most of the last chapter, chapter 18, we read about how it was better to not offend a child, a young believer, or a child. That a person who did offend a child or hurt him in any way, it would be better for that person to hang a millstone around his neck and cast himself into the sea. Because judgment is severe when God's little ones are hurt or abused. He got into the idea of forgiveness. 
the things that we forgive our brothers for and our sisters and the things that they are to forgive us for because God has been so plenteous in his forgiveness towards us. Oh, yeah, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be a Christian in my heart. Are you holding ought against anybody? Are you holding a grudge against anybody? Have you forgiven people and then forgotten whatever the offense was? Verse 35 of chapter 18 says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts do not forgive every one his brother their trespasses. And who, who does God consider our brother? It's every fellow human being that crosses our path, according to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anybody that crosses our path, that's someone, if they're in need, God asks us to take care of them, even the Samaritan, a person from Samaria, a person whom the Jews avoided because of their idolatry. Even the Samaritan knew how God expected him to act towards his brother. And he provided for his care and his healing after he was mugged and beaten on the road to Jericho. Well, here at the end of this chapter, we find the subject of children again. After talking about divorce, broken families, broken contracts, Then there were those that brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Jesus just gave this great teaching and now you're bringing little kids into the picture. We're trying to, we're trying to absorb all of this teaching and make it clear in our own hearts and Jesus is, gonna, Jesus is about to rebuke the disciples and say the children are important too. Then there were brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer, literally allow, the little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You're forgetting the important things about the relationship in marriage. Here are these children. They need to be prayed over. They need healing. It makes me wonder if those that heard this teaching that we just went through about divorce and writings of divorcement, I wonder if it isn't some of them that brought their children who are either fatherless or maybe taken away from their mothers. They all heard it, and they're convicted. My children are hurting. My children miss their mother. They miss their father. It 
doesn't tell us that these were all children from broken homes, but it's an interesting placement as Jesus teaches the apostles a valuable lesson. We're all trying to absorb this teaching that you just gave us, and now they're bringing all these little kids around. What's that got to do with the teaching? It has everything to do with the teaching. It's a continuation of chapter 18, hurting the little children, doing harm to them, providing them with a mother and a father who care for them and are committed one to another to make a life for them. It seems to be the important part of Jesus' message here. Suffer the little children to come unto me. They're as broken as you are. Or they're as broken as you were. Apparently the apostles and disciples were still broken, but they needed fixing. Anybody that needs fixing, that needs healing, that needs a touch... Bring them to Jesus. It doesn't matter their age. It just doesn't matter their age. Age has nothing to do with it. Children need not only both parents, but they need Jesus too. They need Jesus just as much as every adult does. Suffer the little children. Forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. We're going to have our communion service here in a minute or two. We have a few of the kids downstairs in the children's ministry being taught by a loving grandmother and great-grandmother. And they are in sweet union, not only in their play, but in their looking at the Scriptures and learning more about Jesus. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that. I remember when I grew up, there was no such thing as Sunday school. You sat in the sanctuary with your parents. You were disciplined. And I say that word, I use that word in the word that it was meant, in the way it was meant when it was coined. Discipline and disciple come from the same root word to teach to teach to live to give a, a living example to those that you're teaching Jesus had disciples that he taught parents have children that they need to disciple and sometimes it means discipline to teach them how to sit still, to teach them how to be quiet at different times, to teach them that there are times when it's good to speak out, to scream and laugh, and other times when it's not convenient to do that. 
But it's to teach them that every, every opportunity is a teaching moment. And children can learn and children can absorb. They are like little sponges willing to please their parents, desiring to please their parents. And they'll learn eventually. But let them come to Jesus. And if they don't learn about Jesus from you, they'll learn about some other God from some other person. It's vital. It's vital that we teach the little children to come to Jesus. When, when there are so many that come from broken homes these days, there's a passage in the Scriptures that remind us that when mother and father forsake thee, the Lord will take you up. The Lord will take you up. When, when mom and dad divorce, when one of them is missing in your life, who's going to fill that role? It's Jesus can, that can fulfill that missing role. If your mother or your father forsake thee, let the Lord be the one that you work towards pleasing. We look at the, uh, the idea of communion and the Last Supper. In that same way, for Jesus and the apostles that were present at the Last Supper, it was a teachable moment. He had been telling them of his upcoming death and resurrection for several months. But that night was the night when he told them point blank that one of them would betray him that sat at the table with him. And they all started looking around. Is it me? They didn't question his statement. What they questioned was, is it me? Am I going to betray you? Am I going to betray you? Another would ask. Is it me? A third and a fourth would ask. And it was that apostle whom Jesus loved, who truly felt the love of Jesus towards him, John, leaned against his breast and said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, It's the one that dippeth with me in the sop. The way the tables would be set up, there was always bread to break. And there was always olive oil to dip it in. And people sitting next to one another would share a dish of the oil to dip their bread in. And so Jesus was aligned with the one that was sitting next to him immediately to his left as one that would be dipping the sop with him from a single dish. Because of custom, Judas was at the end of the table. 
The seat of honor was immediately to his right. So that left the first two places to share a dish of sop. John is to Jesus' right. Judas is to his left. And they would recline at the table. And it was easy to lean back on Jesus' breast and say, Who is it, Lord? Who is it? And Jesus told him because he loved him. Nobody else came privately to ask him. And he said, it's the one that dippeth the sop with me. Why Judas? He's been with us all along. He's the one that controls the bag. He's the one that holds all of the money for the ministry as we go from place to place. He's the one that takes in He's the one that takes in the funds that people give and donate. He's the one that supplies for all of us as we're traveling. That's power. That's a position of power that he had not been trained for, but had been lifted up to do nonetheless. As I read through 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 23 on, it is Paul giving correction at the Lord's table to the church at Corinth, a church that was, I guess like every church, a little bit off in their doctrines. In the Corinthian church, though, it was actually quite a bit more. They were really off in some of their doctrines being close to Hellenistic society, they worshipped or were coming out of the worship of multiple gods. So Paul, Paul reads to them, and when, when I'm through reading this passage, you can come up and you can take a cup of the grape juice and a morsel of broken cracker and share communion when you get back to your pew seats. Paul writes to them in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. 
Wheresoever whoso shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So before you come up, we'll take that opportunity to examine ourselves just a couple of minutes quietly. Speak to the Lord from your heart. If there's something you need to confess, confess it. If there's something you need forgiveness for, ask Him and He'll forgive. If there's a question that you have in your walk with the Lord, this is a perfect opportunity to ask for clarification. And when you're done, when you're done speaking with the Lord quietly, come up and partake of the emblems of communion. In verse 20 of chapter 26, it says, Now when evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he said unto him, unto, unto, him, unto John, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same betrayeth me. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, knowing the betrayer was with him. As they were eating, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. His body and his blood, broken and shed for us because of the sin that we inherited from our parents, that sin of selfishness, that self of self-centeredness, that sin of being self-oriented so much of the time. Jesus is the perfect example of somebody that went against 
that example, that style of living. As we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us, we remember it in the emblems that we have in our hands. We remember his sacrifice. We remember his death. We remember his suffering because all sin has a consequence. We remember his gift for our benefit. Let's partake of these emblems together. Lord, we thank you. Again, all glory belongs to you. Help us to walk with you this week. Don't let us run ahead. Don't let us lag behind. Help us to stay right at your side. In Jesus' name, amen. From Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that thy way may be known upon earth thy saving health among all nations. God bless you. Have a great walk with Jesus this week. Walk with, the, walk with our King. Walk with our Savior. Let Him be your guide. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Morning Bible Study at Whitestone Christian Fellowship, taught by Pastor Bob Lorenz. To access the list of teachings or to check the archives for Pastor Bob's weekly observations column, log on to whitestonecf.com. There you can also check the weekly schedule and any upcoming events. To contact us or to drop a note to Pastor Bob, you can email us at whitestonecf at gmail.com or call us at 585-924-8820. Whitestone Christian Fellowship is a non-denominational congregation. Every Sunday, Pastor Bob walks us through the Bible, teaching line upon line and verse by verse. And we're located in the village of Victor, a little southeast of Rochester, New York. And if you're in the area, we invite you to visit us. From upstate New York, Pastor Bob encourages all of us to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Until next time, remember that Jesus is our victor. Stay close to him.